Hi there, Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment Magazine. Thanks for joining us today for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. Today I'm with Doug Bruce, CEO of Osmondson Manufacturing out of Perry, Iowa. This podcast is unique from the others in three ways. First, it's the oldest company we've profiled thus far, having been founded in 1903. Our subject is also the fourth generation in family ownership, with the fifth generation now also there too. And third, it's the first in the series on family-run ag businesses to focus on what we call an OEM supplier company. That is, a manufacturer who sells specialized components to those famous whole goods equipment brands that you know. I guess I wasn't smart enough to say quit. I just never thought we weren't gonna succeed. At one point, we did not buy a pound of steel for nine months. We had that much overstock inventory. We gotta have cash flow, you gotta sell something, and somewhere along the line, we'll figure out a way to glean a profit and work our way out of debt, and then we did. That's Osmondson CEO, Doug Bruce, recalling what happened after he bought the company from his parents in 1982. Talk about a good time for mom and dad to sell their shares. Doug is a fixture at all the Farm Equipment Manufacturer Association meetings, I've gotten to know he and Jim Tibbles and Joe Sampson of his team through the association's Board of Governors. While you won't find the Osmondson banners at farm show exhibits, you will find their blades and coulters on a lot of the implements there. And if you do go to the shows, you've probably passed Doug and his team in the aisles. They're there to meet with all the equipment manufacturers they sell to and are scouting for new opportunities to apply their steel forming and heat treating expertise. Something I'm reminded of when I visit supplier manufacturers like these is the high specification, the tight tolerances, and exacting control of many variables that are involved in any metallurgical product. The big brands and colors tend to get most of the attention in the equipment business, but horsepower, electronics, and controls don't make a lick of difference if something like a blade doesn't accomplish job number one of getting that seed to soil contact. The design and manufacturing expertise of these components is so critical that the OEMs outsource it to companies who do that specific manufacturing all day long, 24-7. Before we cut over to the interview with Doug Bruce, a quick shout out to GKN Off-Highway Powertrain, the sponsor who made this series possible. So here we go, my conversation with Doug Bruce of Osmondson Manufacturing. Tell us what Osmondson's role is in the, in the farm equipment industry and what, what you guys make. Our role has evolved from ground engaging things to today, like we start off with shovels and things that turn the soil manually to we supply quite a few of the major manufacturers. We do uh, export to China, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, we did have a facility in Australia that we sold um, that seems to work well. We export into Russia, Ukraine, some of those areas. So we're, we're getting a footprint uh, OEM-wise. We're pushing innovation. We have, I think, 17 or 18 worldwide patents now that overlap with U.S. patents. But, so that's kind of our role is to get the next generation of parts that go on the ground that attack soil residue, getting ready for crops to be planted with equipment that is either new, changing, or original style equipment that needs something to update it. And the things that go on the ground is really your critical issue is how do you turn soil. 
just your your niche would be ground engaging yes. metal components. Yes. We make some other metal components um, that are, as you'd say, kind of invisible on support pieces, specialty springs, things that you wouldn't normally see. But they are everything we do is a heat treated product. It's an alloy, and everything that we make is steel that we design, and it's made to our specifications. Our niche is that we want to make that part that's better each time, that uh, is not just something you can go out and buy this piece of steel and I can heat treat it and go down the road. We evolve from that point. If you told them to go out to a farm show and look at some equipment, where would they see the Asmundson component on there? John Deere disc blades, Great Plains ground engaging, Landau manufacturing, Kinsey in Iowa, uh, all of that type of um, grain drill cedar blades, our product is around a lot of other people. Um, we have parts that are made for people in western Nebraska that enhance or pack soil, move residue. We have a lot of things that customers come to us and say, we would like you to make this part. This is an add-on or an aftermarket add-on to enhance, say, a John Deere planter. They might have a specialty roll cleaner or especially packer. So we get into a lot of people's designs, work with them to try to enhance manufacturing so it's easier to keep competitive against foreign uh, influence, plus give them a part that gives them a leg up to compete. Yeah. It's um, some people like to know that we make it and some people like to promote them, but all of our stuff has our logo on it somewhere. Taken back to the earliest days, and I know this is a family company, tell us that story about how he got started. Great-grandfather was an inventor, uh, a manufacturer from Norway. Family had farms, but farming was not his cup of tea at all. So he and a cousin and a brother got on the cousin's sailboat and sailed across the North Atlantic, the three of them did, to New York. and sold the boat and came to Iowa. Uh, they first ended up in Webster City. They worked on a contract with Deere that through our records did not come to volition. So he started his own factory and he made uh, tiling spades when we used to have to dig uh, red tile on the ground to drain the fields. And he invented a tiling spade that got a patent and it's also one of our tiling spades is in the Smithsonian Institute because it was the most innovative hand tool at the time. From there, World War II broke out. My great-grandfather decided that egg and all these things were not for him. He wanted to go to Minneapolis and he started another factory in the food industry. And so he told his son, my grandfather, you uh, buy part of this, I'll give you part of it and we'll call it good. And I want enough money to go start another plant, so my grandfather bought him out. <laughs> so it evolved, then my father married into the family. He and mom ran the factory for years together, which is the only family members that a husband and wife could work in the office together yeah. and get yeah. along. I love my wife dearly, but we made a deal. We weren't work yeah. in the same office, so, uh, so that's where we are. I uh, started working when I was in high school, I worked two summers in the factory. Then um, my first summer out of college, I was a traveling salesman for four Western states and 
evolved into my real love was manufacturing. So I finally, after four, five years on the road, uh, moved into the factory and started doing what I really enjoyed, which was manufacturing and design and those things. And now we have fifth generation. Uh, our daughter Heather is uh, now vice president of production, and she um, dearly loves manufacturing. She's uh, designed her career to come this direction between three undergraduate majors, and she's got a double business major, worked out east for PPG, and then we coerced her into coming back with a husband, and so we have a Pennsylvanian in, in the state of Iowa yeah, now with a new son-in-law, so that works well. She uh, really enjoys in that work, which is nice um, to get to share something. The rest of the siblings are so thrilled that she wanted to do that because they all have different careers and are pretty happy doing those yeah. careers. So somebody always likes that part of it. Yeah, we're very fortunate. So that's where we are today. So um, your great-grandfather was an immigrant who landed in Iowa yes. and started making uh, tiling spades. T tell me how it evolved and when in the timeline it evolved to be the major supplier that, that you are today. We made a grandfather did forgings and heat treating so we were always in that business then we got in agricultural parts as part of the line then we started with the farm stores in the, the 50s farm and home type operations never were into the oem business until oh the 80s and in the 80s uh, our we made some things for oems but not at the level we wanted to in the 80s our large competitor and probably the leader in the world, which was Ingersoll Steel in Chicago, um, fell into a point where they could, were not going to modernize. They had started facilities and, and had leases or had started factories in other countries, and they became their competitors because there was nothing in their original contract that they couldn't import. So. The imports started coming into our country through an Ingersoll design. So Ingersoll eventually closed in Chicago and our first big push was John Deere called us and said, can you make these parts for us? You're already making them for other people. And he said, sure. So then that OEM business took off mm -hmm. for us. So it was just an evolution of how business develops. And sometimes it develops the wrong direction for mm -hmm. people. You, they made it their own competitors in a time that uh, licensing agreements were the catchword. Yeah. 1980s, was that about the time that you that you bought into the company? Yeah, I'm, I bought my folks out, rough numbers, let's say 82. Right, so at, bought the, them right out at the start of uh, significant change in agriculture. Yeah, right? just before yeah. the bottom fell out of the market, <laughs> yes. Yeah. My folks retired and I had a little tough nut to crack, but uh, I had a great bunch of people at work. Um, Jim Tibbles, that's now president of Osmondson, was a great finance guy in analyzing what we needed to do, how competitive we could be, how you know we could get back on our feet and start selling. And we got down to seven employees at one time in the office. Um, the manufacturing was done by our maintenance, and the tool and die room did the maintenance. But we lived through the 80s, and everybody pulled together, and we came out the other end and we still have quite a few of those guys working for us. They're kind of like I am, they're not smart enough to retire <laughs> either. So it, it, it's a good mix of guys. It's, yeah. a, it's a lot of fun. We all 
have a good time. It's um, be a 20-year guy is pretty common in our company. We have a lot of 30 and 40-year guys. Uh, everybody's had a good time and they enjoy being successful and we like sharing that with everybody. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. so the 80s was a real dark chapter in American agriculture. You had just bought the company. Good byproduct of the 80s is this, the John, work, John Deere work that, that came your way. So found a glimmer of hope in an otherwise yeah. dark time, right? Yeah, it really was late 80s, early 90s. The ag had got through the bad slump when everything happened with Ingersoll because then people were starting to buy more and importing more and that's when it really culminated with Ingersoll products. Mm -hmm. um, people started saying, well, ag's come back. Um, these foreign countries have excess manufacturing capacity and they said, let's ship the United States plus Brazil had an interesting situation. They were drowning in their own country. They needed hard currency to pay the World Bank back. And so they were giving a four to one ratio of their currency to dollars. So in theory, you could sell at a loss for hard currency. The government would give you four times that in local currency. And they were buying all their own resources locally. And so they were making great money on exporting through the government and mm. through the world uh, bank needing hard currency payback. And so they got paid back, Brazil got out of debt and put themselves in the driver's seat for a while for world exports. It's one of those things people never understood why Brazil exported the United States. They couldn't imagine why they could make it cheaper. They couldn't, they were just making money on the reparation of the hard currency going back in their country. So prior to the, <laughs> prior to the John Deere business, most of your work was not OEM, you no, were selling to farm stores. Yeah. Okay. Some small OEMs, some mm -hmm. you know small fellows around that made small discs, and which of course in the eighties they went away. They all closed shop, and they either had to merge or they just were not making anything that was substantial enough. Uh, they hadn't had a war chest to live through a downturn like that, so they were gone. Most of our stuff was just repair parts, and basically today, whether it's an OEM or on aftermarket, as we say, or you know, replacement parts like um, SMA and um, Shoop, and those folks make you know great products. It's a, it's a good resource for farmers that are need to get something that is uh, for an older piece of equipment or a current piece, but odd locations or they don't have you know some dealer support in some areas. But we made those for all those folks, mm -hmm. so they've evolved like we've evolved in a to carrying, you know, top quality line of products. A lot of the interviews that we, we have done with the, the fa these family-run specialty equipment manufacturers, uh, a lot of them, there, were, there was a lot of stories during the 1980s where it wasn't clear that they were going to come out mm -hmm. on the other side. They didn't have the length of existence that you sure. did. Uh, would, were you in danger at one point during the 80s? We were not well capitalized at all, but I guess I wasn't smart enough to they quit. I just never thought we weren't going to succeed. Mm -hmm. At one point, we did not buy a pound of steel for nine months. We had that much overstock inventory. Got down to not many guys, um, but as Jim said, we got to have cash flow. You got to sell something, and somewhere along the line, we'll figure out a way to glean a profit and work our way out of debt. And when mm -hmm. we did, it was slow step, but it was a, it was a planned direction. Mm -hmm. Jim and I worked together on that plan and end up coming out the other end all right. Uh, my wife worked, we got married uh, during that time, and she worked all the time. And when we first uh, 
we're going to get married. My wife said, you know, I'm not going to quit working. I thought, well, good. I didn't think you should quit either. <laughs> that was part of the deal. <laughs> that was part of the deal. I said, I didn't think you were going to quit. We really need the cash flow because whether I took very much out of the business as a salary or not wasn't as critical, but we made ends meet and we slowly got better and things uh, came along for us. We've always made what I wanted to have as, as the most quality product you could buy. You know, it wasn't like I'm going to have two different grades of product. I'm going to cut corners here and, and save five cents. And in the long run, you don't save anything because you don't make your customer feel he's getting the best pro- product you can manufacture. And I, it just go against my nature to make something that had two different grades. So long term, it worked out. Mm-hmm. For people who didn't remember what it was like in the 1980s and kind of the lessons that, as you were talking, you and Jim figured out how to get through this, what would would be some things that uh, you could shed light on that this is how we survived a terrible downturn like this? How did you get through it? We kind of sat down and Jim crunched the numbers. We knew what we had to have for cash flow. We were very lucky. Um, The bank we were with, at that point did not want egg they called our line so we moved to another bank in des moines from our perry location and they said sure we'll try egg they kept us for a year and the vice president that worked with us said we've got a new edict from the board and he says but i've got a bank in minneapolis that uh, is a risk bank that uh, but would like to have your line so we went up there and they were a risk bank but the funny part about it is they were charging us just as much as the Iowa banks were. So they were already charging a risk amount and just didn't, what nice enough to say it. And uh, they worked with us. They loaned money on our finished goods and our raw steel and at a ratio. Of course, working process is worth nothing because they can't finish it anyway. But we worked that out. Um, we were with them for about seven or eight years and they finally had got down to where we were borrowing from them at the lowest amount they wanted to be at and they finally said we found another bank you really need to go to another bank so they basically kicked us out to a, a major bank and which was nice and we'd become that much friends and they called these guys up and said you got to take these guys we're embarrassed to keep charging them too much they don't need us that's kind of our evolution hmm. we had good partners with all these banks some of all of them have merged and gone away now so Mm-hmm. I'd give you their names, but they're not yeah. there anymore. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's still, an important part. I get you know, it's the relationship with your banker that when times get tough, that they hang in there with you. Yeah. As long. Jim came to us from the public accounting side, one of the big national groups. So when we would go to all these steps, Jim had actual numbers. They they weren't fluff. They weren't let's sugarcoat it. He said, "This is exactly where we're at." And that gives a bank a little confidence that you know the situation you're in, mm-hmm. that you're not just saying, oh, yeah, it's going to get better. We n- never sugarcoat it. We said, this is our plan. We're going to stick to the plan. We don't think farmers are going to buy any less coming down the road. We think we're at the lowest ebb of, of ag purchases and, and equipment refurbishing, and it's only going to get better. We are in Iowa, which helps. We're a long way from the coast. We do have imports we compete with, but they have a freight problem just like we have a freight problem exporting. You know, you come from the west or east coast clear to Iowa, you got a lot of dollars in freight. So that kind of helped insulate us a little bit. 
What's your earliest memory of being around as a kid working in the factory or showing they up? They started um, letting me weld. I, I love the factory. I started stick welding when I was uh, seven years old. Then, of course, they wouldn't let you do that in the factory today. Then when I was about 10 or 11, I started making baseball bats on the wood lays. I was not good in sports. I didn't really not care about baseball because I really needed glasses and couldn't see the ball come or go. Mm -hmm. So I went down there after school or on Saturdays and made baseball bats and different things and gave them to my friends. And so I just loved being around the factory. That's where I went after school every day. It was two blocks from my grade school and I went down there. Dad was done with work. I was always a factory guy. It wasn't something that I evolved into. So when I went to college, that was the direction I took my courses. It was uh, more of an entrepreneur business college than a junior executive business type. You know, it was just always in me. My, my folks were always a little surprised at that, but yeah. they were pleased, but they're like, you want to go play sports? No, I really want to go down to the factory. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like building things. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember my father got me tools when I was five. I just died to get tools. And uh, he got me a set of tools, put them on a cute board, and he said, what do you think? And I said, they're plastic. <laughs> so the next year, my sixth Christmas, I got real tools on a board, and he goes, I can't believe you don't. I said, well, they break when you use them, Dad. Yeah. My dad never had a tool in the family, never had a tool in the house. My dad was a salesman. Yeah. We had one screwdriver, and I wasn't sure if it was a tent stake or a screwdriver. So <laughs> <laughs> he was a, a great salesman, just loved, kind of like Ross Baroque, you know, could sell color to a guy that was colorblind. I yeah. mean, that was just his thing. So he was happy I wanted to be in the factory because he needed somebody there that understood manufacturing. Yeah. He could sell stuff, but getting stuff manufactured was a was a was a plague for him. So mm -hmm. and you don't have a lot of resources in small towns always for that next guy. The guys in the tool and die room that are getting close to retiring were in shop class with me. I took his mini shop courses and woodworking and metalworking, machine shop, welding, anything I could take. Plus it helped me get out of high school. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> <It> was, yep. <laughs> reading and chemistry were not my were not my friends, but yeah. Your dad's name is? Don, Donald. Don, okay, and your grandfather? Uh, William Howard and great-grandfather. His father's name was Osmond. The family name was Osmond Stola in Norway, so he came over here. He became Henry, and then he named his son uh, William Howard. I don't know how he came up with it. But his wife eventually came over from Norway. Okay. And uh, they got married and, you know, over there, but she came over, and um, he had a, a large family, like eight brothers and sisters, but he was the only one that worked in the factory with grandfather. Mm -hmm. Went to college for one uh, quarter at Iowa State and came home, and his dad says, you going back? He said, no, nah, I don't really think college is for me. He said, well, you need to bring your stuff back, he said. All I had in my dorm room was one other white shirt that I changed every day when I went to class. That's mm -hmm. all I took to college. So yeah. he, he took a shirt to school and went to college. So he, they didn't have much. So your, your dad was the salesman, the peddling your products out there. Was your grandfather uh, more on the manufacturing side? Yeah, he was okay. more on the manufacturing. Okay. So you got yeah. a unique blend of both of these. My grandfather did all right manufacturing, but uh, to tell you the truth, I think they both would have rather raised horses than they would have worked in the factory. They want to be successful, but it doesn't mean it was their exact thing that fit them the mm. best. Yeah. You know, everybody has something that fits you better. Yeah. Grandfather understood manufacturing, was good at it, but he didn't 
you know, my wife said, I get withdrawal and I don't get to go to the factory and see what mm -hmm. somebody's making or look at new steel or go to a steel mill or, mm -hmm. I'm good at that. Yeah, you're different in that way. It's more of a calling for you, it sounds it just, like. It, it makes, I'm at home there. Yeah. Always been at home. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the guys and uh, hanging out in the shop and making stuff and Jim has taken over the office always and organized everything that was paper-wise. I went to college, I've, I've got a master's degree, I can do all those things, but it's not my first love. You know, uh, somebody asked me about accounting and I said, I took enough accounting that I could have set for the CPA, but I thought that would be the worst thing I would mm -hmm. ever do yeah. because I, I couldn't push numbers all day. Mm -hmm. I, I can understand all those things, which a person needs to. If you're gonna be in the industry, you need to understand everybody's job. And that was, that was my goal to understand what everybody could do so I could at least talk to them intelligently. When they came with a plan, I could follow what they were saying. If you don't, then you're just like, you're in headlights going, wow, what are you talking about? We'll get back to Doug's story in a moment, but first a word of thanks to GKN, who sponsored our travels and time in bringing you this podcast. To learn more about how GKN improves the many different facets in today's farm machinery, visit www.gknoffhighwaypowertrain.com. And now back to Doug Bruce of Osmondson Manufacturing. The balance of this episode will cover the facility overview, R&D and how suppliers work with the equipment manufacturers, and other interesting thoughts from Doug. I've been out to your place, been a couple of years, but came out for a uh, FEMA board meeting uh, there that Jim was Jim yeah. was hosting. But tell our, our listeners who may, maybe haven't walked through your facility, um, you know, describe what they would see, the types of equipment, the size, those kinds of things. We basically, one, it, it, it's, it's a long building without interior walls. One end we bring in coils, uh, when you see a coil on a semi, you wonder why it only has one. Well, normal coils of steel weigh 40,000 pounds. So we bring in a coil of steel. We do our own decoiling and blanking. Uh, round products is a, a major part of what we do. We do bar stock for chisel spikes, plow points, plow shears. We get those from, from different mills, but it basically comes in on flatbeds. We work everything through. We sharpen all of our product. Then we, the center of the plant is all hot work. We have five major hot work lines. Um, our center furnace is, um, we'll do about nine or 10,000 pounds an hour of um, heating steel. We form it, quench it, then it goes through a wash and temper area. That's pretty typical of all of ours. My father loved automotive where you never did something and put something on a pallet and then moved it somewhere else and took it off the pallet and then did something. So. All of our stuff, we try to make it as close to flow through as possible. We do uh, rough machining and finish shaping, punching, cold work wise, but we still have a lot of presses on the hot work end, whether it's pre doing things before we heat treat it or after we get it hot, and then we do different shaping and bending and those things. So and then it, from there, it goes clear through the line um, for moist and checked and painted, packed, and re-inspected. So it's pretty much just a, f a flow through. 
It's not as pretty as Ford Motor Company in those places, but it's the same theory. You were, was it about 140,000 square, square feet? feet? Yeah. yeah. You catch all of our rainwater, so we have um, water when we need to cool things and that stuff. So that part's nice. My father uh, built a new building in 75. We were downtown, but we lost a rail line through our town in about... 72 and rail was able to be sold but they had to take rail out to sell both ends of it so we lost 17 miles of rail was came through our town so we would still love to have rail it was a nice way to move steel in and out especially steel like we buy but mm -hmm. it was gone so being out in the country didn't make any difference uh, we have huge resources of natural gas in iowa we store a lot of natural gas. We have natural stone in the ground that they can pressurize the stone with natural gas. So we heat with natural gas, so, mm -hmm. which is um, not a pollutant, which is nice. Mm -hmm. It just turns back into water vapor. <laughs> right. So we're basically green. We've got LED lights in the place, and everything we temper with is uh, biodegradable. So. And how many employees there at the plant? We're back up to around a hundred. So we've had a nice flurry this year. We're up maybe 10-15%. So we're seeing some stabilization in the industry, so which mm -hmm. is wonderful. And the product that is made there in, in Perry, Iowa, wh where else does it go beyond farms here in the, in the United States and Canada? Uh, we sell into China. We have a distributor in Vietnam that gets some into the Philippines, Vietnam, I'm into Cambodia. We're working on a contract into Japan right now with one of our new patented products for rice because rice is a very ropey, difficult product. And we have a new product, believe it or not, that uh, we call a samurai. And the Japanese were really thrilled about it because it is so sharp. It's very hard to handle. You have to use leather gloves. It's a very aggressive product. But on their first test, uh, they've been thrilled with how it works in uh, chopping up uh, rice stalks, mm -hmm. which is fun. We do stuff in the Ukraine and Russia. There's a lot of American product over there. We do a lot of programs with some of our uh, major OEMs to get them over there. We package and ship for them. So, and they get to their operation on that site so it doesn't have to go through all of their operation in the States because that slows them down. So we do stuff there. Um, we've not been able, we used to sell a little in Australia and it, it kind of has waned. We hope to go back again. One of our new OEMs has distributorship over there, so that looks exciting. Africa is complicated. We're, some years they buy a lot, a lot of their money comes through the uh, World Bank for feeding people, so and we're not connected very well with that group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're a little too large for us. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. We kind of have a smattering around the world. We hope it grows. We do a lot of travel around the world. We talk to people. We have some stuff in uh, Germany, working on uh, some German uh, manufacturers. So when people hear Osmondson, think Blades Coulters primarily? Is it? I would say so. Yeah. We make plow parts. Um, we make some specialty parts for Europeans. Uh, but basically, it's... Um, Colders, grain drill blades, disc blades, that's your most fuel efficient, easiest way to turn the soil, mm -hmm. to get stuff in and out. Yeah. That's the, it's not that the other things don't work, they're slower, 
there's less farmers. The last conference we had here, we had one of the friends of mine talk on the, the fact that there's going to be less farmers, more lands are going to have to go faster. So this is one of the things, anything that speeds up faster planting, faster cultivation, you still got to go through the stuff. But. So what you do is, is extremely important to the seed to soil contact and the, the success the farmer is going to have get that seed in the, into the ground properly. The manufacturers of the equipment themselves have never really, really made that part. They've no. outsourced it to specialists like yours. It, it is so non-typical. When you have a heat treat line, you can't just turn it on one day and run. It just will not run. It's like thinking you can make records one day a week and get the vinyl hot and start pressing records. It won't work. You can't shut it off. We keep everything hot 24 hours a day. We run tens, but we overlap. So we really only have kind of a quiet hour in there that something's not going on in, in the production lines. Just because you, you lose your heat treat, it's like blowing glass. You just got to keep everything hot and moving smoothly. Mm -hmm. So we just do so much better by doing that. We don't have any robots. All our stuff is handmade. There's a guy looking at that part, making that choice. That I like the looks of this color. It's forming right. It's heat treating right. It, he doesn't like it. He'll call somebody over and it can be off 25 degrees so they'll warm it up. Because all steel's a little different. It's not, you order it because you're throwing alloys in so it, it can always be slightly different. So he has to have that ability to say, mm, it looks a little not red enough to me. It just doesn't look right. What is the R&D process like in working closely with the manufacturers on metallurgy and the designs? How, how does all that? They don't work with you. We, we design all of our own and take it to them and say, okay. we think we've got a better horseshoe. This is going to fit better. This is what, what you need to attack the soil with. They're great at building the big piece of equipment. But that last part, it's like um, General Motors goes to tire people when they build a new car. And the tire people say, well, you're going to go this fast, you have this much thrust, you want this kind of stability, what kind of suspension do you have? Years ago, Lincoln Continental had uh, Michelin design their steel belted tires. Half of the suspension on that Lincoln was the tires. If you didn't put that Michelin on, you couldn't drive this Lincoln down the road because that was part of the suspension was that steel belted tire. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do is go to the OEMs and say, we know you need this next generation. We've been watching your equipment. We would like you to try our product. We think this will solve either residue, speed, um, doesn't throw dirt. It, it has a longer wear cycle. You get 12% more wear out of this, this steel that we're offering you. We kind of go around and, and develop that. They're trying to develop manufacturing, ease to hook it up, pull it. How does it act in the field? We go to field trials. We were down to one of our major OEMs and they're trying three of our different products. Going by with, with a lot of residue. And they said, well, this cuts better. This incorporates better. This att att attacks this uh, stock much better. So they're all talking and saying, okay, we've, we've got to make a decision. What are we going to put on our, our new equipment line? So yeah. that's kind of how it works. So you, you largely are their R&D when it comes we try to, to be, yeah. those products. Yeah. You take it to them. Um, there's a, I'm trying to figure out what the time frame is between buy-in with them and the product testing out in the field before it goes to market. What, what would be a typical time cycle? The longest would probably be deer, probably be four years with deer. Um, some of the short lines that don't make tractors 
power equipment two years, three years. Okay. Um, the aggressive guys can, I've seen them put them out in one season and then the next season it's, let's go, because hmm. it solved a problem. So it can be as short as like say 18 months and as long as five years. Yeah. It just depends on how many people they go through and how desperately they need to come, come up with a solution. You know, BT corn stuff that has tougher corn stalks was a, was a real problem today. The higher the yield, the more, we don't really make equipment to handle the dirt anymore. We make equipment that has to cut through six or eight inches of residue so we can find the dirt mm -hmm. to do something with the dirt. Yeah. Because residues, good yields, we get 250, 280, uh, Harry Stein seeds up to 330 in some areas. That's a lot of residue. When you look back and over the last 30 years, what was a, a product that you brought to market, a success story you were most, most proud of? Our turbo uh, disc that uh, CNH ran for years, it was by far, by far the best. The best and it was an interesting product because the turbo be, had a mechanical action in the soil and it was a non-mechanical part. Um, it went in perpendicular and it came out horizontal, so it pulled the dirt off of it. it it mixed the soil, it did all those things. Mm -hmm. The real downfall to it is in rocky conditions, it was a great rock picker because it could pick the rocks up and also bend a lot of blades. So mm -hmm. it uh, was its own worst enemy over a smooth blade, but it, it did a great job, so. Mm -hmm. What year was did that come to market? Well, see, at my age, you're trying to have me remember things. <laughs> it waned at uh, when egg hit the crush what, three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. That's about when it stopped. And we probably ran hard, I'm guessing, six, seven years yeah. prior to that area. Okay. So turn of, say, 03, 04, it started getting real popular. Mm -hmm. CNH had picked up. Their, their new line was really working well. A good friend of mine, Bill Preller, was in charge of that. Uh, we had gone to the people that CNH had purchased years before that with this product and they tried it for a couple of years. We'd had it for about six, seven years and couldn't get any traction. Mm -hmm. And we had a bunch of parts and Preller called up one day and said, I want you to bring this size over here. We're going to use smaller blades, faster disc. That's what we're after. Mm -hmm. So, and it worked great for him and it took off. What are, what are some of the, the major trends in, in farming practice and tillage over the last 20, 30 years that have really changed the demands of the products that you're making and how did you respond to those market demands? Most of it is is speed and speed multiplies load and so deformation of shape, breaking, breaking the product is from use and flexibility, flexibility is like, like kind of a car spring. You get so many bounces until the spring, spring gets tired. Our products are pretty much the same way. So we had to really develop steel that was harder more wear resistant and also um, could stand high shock because the faster you go, you don't really have leverage, you have impact, you have more shock impact. So that was what we really had to come up with was a steel that was that liked that and then the way w that we would uh, have it tempered would take this shock but still was extremely hard. Our blade today, you can't take a drill bit and drill through it. You really can't. When we test it, we put a hole in it before we manufacture it because we can't drill a hole in it. But it still will take shock, and that's that's what we're after, is that type of a product, which is 
right on the line of where the steel people say, you really can't do that and we really have no clue where to direct you. So we had to do our own R&D to come up with that perfect grade of steel with the perfect tolerance that worked in our facility, worked with the way we heat treat, the way that we want to manufacture that end product. What did the trends like vertical tillage and strip tillage and the, the high-speed compact disc, what did, what did that do from uh, your business and, and how you guys responded to things? It's helped. We have probably five patents that we use in different locations from North Dakota clear down to uh, the sand in, in Georgia. Um, all vertical till is critical. Um, speed is what everybody's after. If you can't prepare the field and get it level fast, it's going to be hard for you to plant the field that fast. You know, everybody would like to plant at 10 miles an hour. I'd like to see them, and they can, you can cultivate at 10 miles an hour. Uh, I have some guys that are testing our equipment uh, that go 14 miles an hour now and get a good finish uh, field that they can go right back and plant in. But you have to have that decision that I want to use this aggressive thing, and then you fight the underground, whether it leaves any ripples that you can't see, and any undulation, and the guys that are planters have an opinion about how the seed should be planted, and the guys that want to go through the field have an opinion about that. So it's like selling cars. Everybody wants a different color. Mm -hmm. So it's not a direct road. It gives you the option to have five options for your customers and say, you want it, this, this will do what you're asking, but it won't do this also. Looking back, an example, a specific situation that you've been proudest about with what Osmondson's been able to do. I think going from an oil heat-treated product to a water-based heat-treated product so that we are, I think that it's, it's more than a product that's being in harmony with Mother Nature. We work with Mother Nature, we're in farming. So to get us away from that years of old-style foraging and old-style heat-treating to a product that was able to be done in a water-based type, a biodegradable type, medium, was wonderful. Yeah, I think that's our best. That That's our next generation, and we'll always go that direction. Now it's hard. How do you get the next steel that still is? You can heat treat that way that still climbs the ladder being better, faster, harder. That's what they all challenge us with, and of course, not change the price on it. Right. So right. It, it. It's always an interesting conversation yeah. with them. But getting the farmer that product that he's proud to use and says, yeah, not buying something that's not good, you know. I don't think a farmer out there doesn't cringe every time they have a stack of tires out behind their building saying, I wish we'd come up with some idea to do something with the tire. At least our product, it's it goes back through the life cycle and gets melted down again. Right. So right. that part's good. And I know they all have scrap runs to get pop money, so mm -hmm. that part's good. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the original recycling right there. Yes, it is. What do you want to make sure that Heather understands as she grows in, in her responsibility with the business, the, the things that you want to make sure are passed down? Well, the business runs for the customers because without a customer, you really don't have a business. Um, and everybody goes through, well, I work for the stockholders, I work for, you know, the bank, I work for, but basically without the customer, you really don't have a business. So that being put aside, I think we treat everybody like it's family. You can't, you'll never pay anybody as much as they would really, really love to get paid, myself included, 
but it has to, at the end of the day, be fair. We try to share responsibility, outcome. We have a system that at the end of the year, if we're profitable, we come up with a percent that we can pay all of our employees in a bonus. The bonus is calculated on your take-home pay. So the more hours you work, the more overtime you volunteer for, the more money you'll get. And we've been anywhere from paying nine, nine weeks pay, I think one time we paid almost 11 weeks pay as a bonus to the people down to as low as two weeks pay when you don't have a stellar year. But mm. they all, uh, there's no guarantee we're gonna have one or anybody gonna get a bonus. Depends on if you make money. But mm. that gives you your teamwork. Uh, we pay employees by their skill level, not the job they do. So you might have the most skilled guy in the world over there packaging something or rechecking something. It, it makes no difference. You're paid on your skill, ability, supervision level. And they have a chart of what you have to be able to do to be at that level. And people can go downhill too. They can get lowered in that skill level when they maybe can't do this, don't want to do this, I don't want to supervise anybody, I want to work by myself. So it can change either direction. A lot of our listeners on, on this podcast might be, they might be dealers, be other manufacturers, or be some farmers and in, you know, the blade manufacturing is a bit kind of invisible. It's not the brand of the equipment that they are, they're buying per se, but the, a very critical piece of that machine they're buying. What do you think the rest of the world doesn't understand about a blade manufacturing operation? Like That's kind takes? of a tricky question. You've been waiting on that one. I like that one. There's lots of grades. We compete with roughly 32 offshore manufacturers, anywhere from oh. it will turn the soil, um, no guarantees, it might not fit very well. The biggest thing is everybody generates a demand to a level of manufacturing around the world that pretty much fits their culture, their economy, and what people can actually pay. Our farmers are lucky in the fact that they know if they have a short growing season, a short planting season, if they don't get the best product to get in the field, that it works, that they're not down because the bearings failed on a planter, um, the cover wheel you know, blade doesn't work. They can't spend four days tearing this thing apart, going into town. They hope to get planted in 10 days. They don't have that. You live somewhere it's wet all the time and you're planting stuff all the time, you go, that's okay, I can do it tomorrow. The United States has a huge amount of the best farmland in the world because Mother Nature gave us two mountain ranges. Mm -hmm. A lot of countries don't have that. So we want to do more as their economy evolves into selling them a product that they now can choose that I'm gonna have two growing seasons or three growing seasons because it makes the most sense as crop seeds are generated so they are seasonal, depends on moisture and temperature, because that still does change in the country. You, they don't raise three of the same crop in a year if you have three cycles, unless you're California raising vegetables. So, and like California, they just wear blades out out there. They kind of have a, a rule of thumb. You have a blade that goes 1,000 acres or one that goes 4,000 acres because it's denoted by how long the bearings last. So they purchase a product that's either really expensive or very inexpensive, mm -hmm. and there's nothing in between. So if you're making blades, there's no in-between market there. You have yeah. two choices. Yeah. 
And so we all kind of realize that. So we have to target ourselves, the OEMs target them, themselves, what they want to sell to that farmer, as same way as the repair parts. Just sitting here, observations of mine, this, it's really pretty complicated. Very high specifications on these products. And you have, of course, the, the, the volatility of steel pricing to contend with. It's, it's, this ain't an easy game you're in, is it? No, but it's fun. I like the people that I'm in the game with. I think basically all of our competitors are honorable people. They want to be successful for themselves, their stockholders, the area they live in. But overall, I don't really think that we have people that aren't. I know I've traveled the whole world. I've probably seen almost all my competitors. I know them personally. I think that if you don't know people face to face, it's it's hard to compete with them. It's hard to have them understand why they're competing with you and try to divide this market up so we can all be successful because everybody has their pluses and minuses. So I like that part. I like the, the personal choice of being in the ag industry. I like knowing people. Everybody's out there to employ their employees and sell something in their own country or go to a country that needs some innovation. So. Thanks to Doug for the story on four generations as a family manufacturer, and also to GKN for helping make this podcast series possible. Check GKN out at www.gknoffhighwaypowertrain.com. And remember to keep up on all the farm equipment industry news by registering for the free daily email at www.farm-equipment.com. Plus, you can receive the next podcast at the very moment it's completed by signing up to receive this farm equipment podcast free on your favorite channel, such as iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, and the others. And a final shout out to our talent here at Lesseter Media. A particular thanks to Jeff Lazeski and Joe Kinsley. And Joe, my taking this podcast down to the wire this week was simply a planned exercise to test the organization's agility and speed which we know is so important in today's farm equipment world. You buying that one, Joe? Well, thanks for joining the one-on-one conversation with Doug Bruce of Osmondson Manufacturing. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment Magazine, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs.